The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Isn't it a joy to have great music in between? It's just such a joy, and those old hymns come up and everything. So thank you very much, Meg. Well, happy Father's Day to you. If you're a father here, or uh, if your kids are grown, or if they're younger, or whatever it is, happy Father's Day to you. And uh, we'll get a little bit to that a little later. I I just want to encourage you. You all have been so gracious to us in the first couple months we've been here. This is our second month anniversary here. It's hard to believe it's only been two months in a good way. Uh, someone said, what does it feel like? I said, it's been like, it's been like six months because there's so much going on when you start a new ministry. You've been so kind to us. Thank you for your grace with me as I try and grow in preaching and try and do this better each week. And so thank you for praying for us. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. It is truly a privilege. And, uh, so, and thank you for the jokes that you give me. Some of you all have some really good jokes. And uh, it's usually about my hair or lack thereof or something like that. But I appreciate your, uh, your attempts to be humorous with me. I really do appreciate that. Happy Father's Day to you. Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. Praise the Lord, we made it through chapter 1. Amen? Some of you didn't think we'd ever get out of chapter 1, and here we are in chapter 2, so it's good to be there. And we're going to be talking about gospel-centered unity today, gospel-centered unity. You know, there's a great professor at a Dallas Theological Seminary. He passed away last year, but his name was Dwight Pentecost. He taught at Dallas Theological for over 60 years. That's a long time to teach and a long time to stay at one place. But he shared a story from the 60s about a church in Dallas. And I want to read this to you. It's about a certain church in Dallas that at one time was a divided church. And the division became so serious that two groups in the church started suing one another in public court. They took each other to court. And the newspapers picked this up. The TV stations picked this up. They thought it was actually quite humorous that this was going on. So uh, the judge finally ruled. He said, I cannot decide which one of you is correct, so I'm going to send back your case to the church court, your higher denominational church court, and they will decide it from there. So they took it before the church court. They heard both sides of the argument. And later, the the church court decided to give part of the church away, or the whole church away, to one part. So the other church part got mad and started their own church. Sounds like a lot of churches today. And they came to find out, they said, well, what was the source of the reason they split. Was it doctrinal? Did they believe different things? Was it worship music? Did somewhat contemporary music or old music? No, actually they found that the pastor had gotten into a spat with a 10-year-old boy over ham. Ham. The 10-year-old boy was given a larger slice of ham at the dinner for Thanksgiving than than the pastor did, and the man yelled at the young man, And his parents got mad at the pastor, and they started making sides until finally it got to the end result. Does anyone else just not find that absolutely crazy? I won't tell you the denomination. I won't tell you the church. It is on the public airways. But one thing I will say is this. Do you think the people of Dallas had a good laugh at the expense of Jesus Christ? What a crazy, crazy story. But someone has once said that they've seen this. Christians fighting with one another, but what is unseen is Christians praying with one another. That's why I think Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul had this to say. He said, live in harmony with one another. Let there be no divisions in the church. 
and rather be in, united with one mind in thought and in purpose. Friends, the gospel is powerfully displayed when unlikely groups of people come together and don't separate over things like ham. The character of the church is to, to reflect the character of God. And in doing that, the church should be a holy, loving, and united place because God is holy, loving, and united. And so this morning, as we enter chapter 2, we're going to be looking at some things that we're going to talk about what Christian unity means. What does that really mean? How do we at Tower View maintain or keep going the unity that we have? So when we have our Christmas dinner, if I get a bigger piece of pizza than you, you won't look at me and say, I'm out of here because the pastor got a bigger piece of pizza than you. How can you do that together? Well, our big idea, and some of you ask, why do you throw up this big idea every week? Well, I do this because I want you to have a takeaway. I want you to have something very simple you can take away each week about what the sermon was about. And the big idea this week is simply this, is that any unity in a church that's manufactured apart from humility, being humble, in the gospel is a false unity. You see, because there's a lifelong pursuit of being precise in what we believe. But if we're not humble with what we believe, we can be very easily divided amongst ourselves. But we must be careful. We are not going to join hands with everyone around the world and sing kumbaya. In fact, unity that's built on an undefined God, an undefined Christ, and an undefined salvation is not unity, but it's compromise at the worst level that you can ever have. Unity is a very precious thing, but it should not be at the expense of biblical truth. As heat radiates from a fire, Unity and diversity of the gospel flows out from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is where we're headed today because Paul's headed that way. And so this morning we're going to look at, again, three things. You guys are going to have your threes down after this whole thing, I'm telling you. Three things that you'll see as we go through this passage. First thing, we're going to see the motivation for unity. Why are we to be unified together in verse 1? We're going to see the matter. How are we supposed to go or what are we supposed to do? Why is this so important? and the means. How do we do this? How do we take a look at this and do this? Friends, what Paul is saying again is that any unity apart from Jesus Christ is no unity at all. This is why as a church, we don't just partner with anyone. We run it through the lens of the gospel because our message is timeless, and we have to make sure that that timeless message does not get diluted down. And where Paul has been heading the last few weeks is he's been telling them, be unified, be unified, live a gospel-centered life, live a life worthy of the gospel. Last week, we looked at how suffering is a gift from God. It's not the gift we may want from God, but as a Christian, that's the suffering that comes to us because we live lives worthy of the gospel. And Paul's turning it around in chapter 2. He's getting ready to talk to them about unity. Because if you will read in chapter 4, there were some ladies fighting. Some people were fighting, and he's building that bridge as he gets down that way. And next week, we will look at why ultimately we should be unified, because Christ laid down his glory so that we could have uh, the gospel and unification together. With that in mind, if you'll join me in standing for the reading of God's word this morning, Philippians chapter 2. Again, if you're new with us and don't have a Bible, we're on page 980 in that big Bible in front of you. That is always a gift from us to you. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, gospel-centered unity. Paul writes this. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, 
And verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant or better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. May God bless the reading, hearing, and doing of his word this morning. Let's go before the Lord in prayer today. Father, we are so grateful that we have an opportunity to come on another rainy day. But Father, it's a rainy day that you have made. And thank you for providing the rain in the midst of heat. Lord, thank you that you provide even the biggest things and you provide the smallest things. So Lord, as we go before your word today, Lord, give us wisdom. Lord, let our eyes and our, our ears and our hearts and everything that we have be focused on you. Lord, thank you that we have a reason to be here, and that's because Jesus Christ lives on forever. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. I want you to, first off, as we start this, I want you to notice again the motivation for unity that Paul gives us. How does Paul take this church and make it unified? Does he chide him? Does he crack his whip and say, I'm the apostle, do it because I told you to do it? Does he shame him? Does he name call him? No, what he does first off is he simply tells them that you have been unified in Jesus Christ. That is your motivation because Christ has given your life, his life, for your life. And he reminds them via the gospel that unity comes from the gospel. Look again at verse 1. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in who? In Christ. That's where he starts. Friends, the basis of everything in your life, from your family to your job to everything, the foundation is Christ. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Let me tell you what gospel unity is first off. Gospel unity is the same problem. We all have the same problem. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But oh, bless God, we all have the same hope. Amen? His name is Jesus Christ. And because of that, if you're a true Christian, you've recognized your sin, you've believed Christ as Savior and Lord, you have the same purpose. And what is that purpose? That we be unified as Christians together. That is what Paul is appealing them to. And he gives us four statements in here that I'll just go over very briefly with you. He first off says, he says, have you experienced the encouragement or the comfort of Christ? He says, have you experienced the comfort of our Lord Jesus? Has he attended to you when you were suffering? Have you felt that, 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 that peace that surpasses all understanding when everything in your life shouldn't go that way? Have you felt that in your heart? Have you Philippians felt the the reproach of the gospel have you felt the suffering that comes with the gospel oh I know you have so be unified in that that word there for comfort is the same word if you're really interested in this that is used for the Holy Spirit it's uh, the 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 paraclete it's the uh, not the parakeet like a bird but the paraclete which is the Holy Spirit it's the comforter Jesus is called the same word in first John chapter 2 So he says, have you experienced any encouragement? That's your motivation. Secondly, he says, is there any consolation of love? The love here that Paul speaks of is the love that comes from the Father, God himself. Paul is asking us, do you know the Father's love? He says, Philippians, if you have experienced your heavenly Father's love, how much more should you have the love together because of the love he's given you? But he says, oh, I know you have. I know you have. And then he says, he goes on to the third question, is there any fellowship of the Spirit or is there any consolation of the Spirit? This is referring to the Holy Spirit of God, the, if I can say it this way, the, the red-headed stepchild in most Baptist churches because we like the Father, we like the Son, but boy, talking about the Holy Spirit, we get all these 
weird things. But friends, the Holy Spirit is fully God. Amen? The Holy Spirit is not just a force like Star Wars and it just runs around and does all these things. The Holy Spirit is God. And what Paul is saying is if you have been baptized in the name of Christ, you have received the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To be in the Spirit, you have to know Jesus Christ. And finally, he says, is there any affection? Is there any compassion? Paul builds up these four statements, and he says, if your experience of God's encouragement, of his comfort, if you have had any effect to you, then you will have affection and compassion for one another. The word for affection is literally means bowels or inner parts. It's the moving of yourself so much that you have a deep feeling towards one another. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 8, you may remember this. Uh, m- many of you laughed when we talked about a bowel movement, and that's literally kind of what the word means. It's a moving of yourself. But chapter 1, verse 8 says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul says, Philippians, if you have experienced that affection, then there should be nothing keeping you from being unified as a body of Christ. That second word, the last little if statement there, the word compassion, is a word from the Greek that speaks of God's compassion for his people. What a compassionate God we have, amen? Friends, we have a compassionate God. Our salvation is evidence that God cares deeply about us. So that's the motivation he's going for. But I want to share a story with you that speaks to Father's Day and also speaks a little bit about where Paul's headed in a secular example. Back in 2001, if you can remember back that far, it seems like a long time ago, we started a war with Afghanistan over the the 9-11, just kind of in response to 9-11. Mike Spann was his name. A 32-year-old man was a CIA commando who was uh, killed in action, the very first person killed in action. And the newspaper clipping that will be up on the screen, it says he died a hero. He died a hero. He was one of the first people to die as he was cut down in the prime of his life on November 21st of 2001. And when the newspapers asked him, this is the very first death of a new war, the newspapers were all over this. They, they asked Mike's dad, they said, what was Mike all about in his life? Why did he do what he did? His father said this. He said, Mike wanted to make a world a better place for us. And he paused for a second and his father went on. He says, someone has got to do the things no one else wants to do. That's really what Mike lived, and that's really what Mike believed. Someone has got to do the things no one else wants to do. You know, Mike went there because he understood his service, and we're so grateful for his service as we are many others. And I think the parallel of what Paul is telling this church, he's saying, church, your motivation for doing things sometimes is because you have to do what you have to do. And as Christians, our motivation for doing things is we have to do what we have to do because God has done what he's done for us. But you know what? Community squeezes out self-centeredness. Community squeezes out self-centeredness, doesn't it? When this man gave his life for his country, he was certainly thinking about his, his wife, his dad, his family. But at the end of it, he was really thinking about, I am here to serve I have a mission, I have a purpose, and I'm here to do it. So what does this mean for us? You know, God has had unity and community important from the very beginning. Ever thought about that before? 
Adam and Eve lived in perfect harmony in the garden, but it broke down quickly. A blame game erupted, and ladies, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we can say this, is that both were equally responsible at that point, and Adam took the fall for our sin. Both started a blame game at that point, and you can have that joke, well, did, did Eve tempt him on, or did Adam do it? Here's the thing. Adam was the leader. Adam took the bite. Adam took the fall for sin. And husbands, what a, what a responsibility we have. Amen? We're the leaders of our family, and sometimes that takes the hard cost. But ever since the beginning, community has been what God has been focused about. And unity comes only through the work and person of Jesus Christ. That's how unity is formed. We can come up with all sorts of uh, programs at our church, and those aren't bad in them themselves. But if we're not unified around the gospel, then we have a false unity. And if you're not a Christian here today, you cannot have unity in the body. You can get together, be nice to one another, but unless you're unified to Jesus Christ, you do not have unity. But Christian, rejoice that in Christ, he has given you himself and this church. What an amazing thing. Mark read from Psalm 133 today. talks about how unity is a great thing before the Lord. Unity is something we should be praying for for this church. If you get the prayer guides that we hand out on the information rack, one of the first things we pray for is unity in the body of Christ. That said, not all unity in this world is good. There was an organization, and they're close. I won't say its name, but there's an organization that I was at college. It was, uh, it was. I won't say its name. I'll just say it that way. But they brought in all these different faiths and all these different religions, and they said, "Well, don't we agree?" Don't we agree it's about being a good person and, and trying all these great things and, and doing those things? And sure, yes, let's do good things. Let's help humanity. But you know what the difference was between all those in the Christian faith? Jesus Christ. Friends, we have to remember that unity comes at a cost. Are you praying that our Christian community here stays focused on that gospel? Because let me tell you this. When we are unified as a church, it makes the Christian faith believable. Christian community makes faith believable. Do you believe that? Christian faith makes it believable. Can I ask you this morning, who is it in your life, in this congregation, that you may not consider a brother or sister in Christ because they're of a different persuasion, different political side, different, they like to do things you don't like to do? Are you praying that the unity in this church isn't just based on a sports team? We have a couple KU fans down up front. And if I wasn't a Christian with them, I would probably say, I'm not going to talk to you because you are wearing KU. But you know what? I'm a Mizzou fan. They're a KU fan, but we love Jesus Christ. Amen? Friends, unity, the motivation for it is what Christ has done for us. That is the base. He gives them the motivation. Second, he gives them the matter. Why does he give them the matter of this? The what? We saw that the motivation to unity with our brothers and sisters comes from the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. But what is Christian unity to be marked by? We know the why. Now we need to understand the what. Paul, again, is going to use four expressions that we'll go through just very briefly. Read again with me verse 2 as we go through this. He says, If there's any love, if there's any participation, any affection and sympathy in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and with one mind. That phrase there, complete my joy, is the command that he's giving them. There's no other imperative command in these four verses, but this is Paul's command. Paul's command to them is complete my joy by being of the same mind. So being of the same mind means we're unified in thought, in attitude, and in deed. But let me say this again. The ground floor, 
the foundation, if you will, of Christian unity is unity of the mind. Unity of the mind. Any thought that says we have to get together just because we're Christians and that's what we do misses the whole point. Friends, it's foreign from the pages of Scripture to get together as Christians without the foundation of knowing that we've been saved from our sins and that Christ has redeemed us. What an amazing reason to get together. Because I, I bet you that most of you all have better things to do on a Sunday morning than to come to church if what we believe is not true. Is that not true? Isn't that why Paul said, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? Because if the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't happen, if this gospel we talk about every week didn't happen, let's get out of here. Man, I've got a th- ton of weeds to pull on my front lawn. I, I guarantee you that you can come help me with. But you're here today because you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. And that's where Paul starts with the what. He says, we are first of all to be of the same mind. It's not just to be intellectually the same. Christian unity should not be less than the intellectual, the mind. But it's more than that. We're not only to be of the same mind, but we're to have the same love. It's not merely a matter of the head, it's a matter of the heart. We are not only to agree with one another, but we are to love one another fervently and from the heart. Look up 1 Peter 1.22. But Paul doesn't stop there. Not only are we to be of the same mind, but we're to have the same love. Notice what he says. He says, second, we are to be united in spirit. United in spirit or having the same love. Literally, it's together in the soul. It means you're united together. It's knit together. It's like a husband and a wife. We, we have these uh, rings, and they, they symbolize the coming together of two into one flesh. And Christian unity that is driven by the gospel of Jesus Christ reaches the mind, but we have the same attitude, and it reaches the heart because we have the same love. And this phrase reaches our very soul. It's the whole person of who you are is focused on being unified in Christ. Because guess what? Christ didn't just redeem a part of you. He, re- he redeemed the whole part of you. And that's the kind of unity that we are to cultivate in this church. But notice thirdly, he says we are to be intent on one purpose, on one purpose, being in full accord with one mind. Friends, that's why at this church we have one single focus, and it is God's glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is most powerfully displayed when unlikely groups of people are united together in love. This is what it means to be gospel-centered. This is what it means to be gospel-driven in your life. I bet you at some point, you and your wife don't agree on something, husbands, right? Fathers, you're not always in agreement. Some of y'all are looking around. You know this to be true. You're not going to agree on everything, but the foundation is there. You have committed your lives to God, and that's the foundation. What Paul is saying is that we are not to let disunity get in the way of our one purpose, and that is what Jesus Christ has done for us. We are to disciple all nations, to proclaim the gospel, to love one another, to serve one another, because that is what it means to be unified in Jesus Christ. But you know, sometimes Christians are like this little boy I read about. Some of you are grandparents, you'll appreciate this story. Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a boy that looks like this. This isn't his picture, but man, this sells the story well. The grandmother told the story. Her name was Roxy Wallace. About a, Her preschool grandson was visiting. It was supposed to be a joyous time, but boy, he got testy quick. And boy, he didn't like everything grandma did quick. The little things got to him, especially that she didn't give him more animal crackers when he wanted more animal crackers. 
And when he finally told, she finally told him, no, you're done with animal crackers. Boy, he burst into tears, just like this one you see on the screen above you. And in exasperation, Roxy said, Sam, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. You cry over nothing, especially animal crackers. And he calmed down and he looked at her with a very calm face and he replied, Grandma, all you needed to tell me was stop whining and I would have stopped whining at that case. Try that next time, grandparents, and see if that works. Some of you are nodding your heads and you know this may be true. You know, sometimes as Christians, we just need to be told once again, just like that, that young boy, is we need to be told once again that this church is not about us. This church is not about our preferences. This church is not about what we feel best. It's about what God feels best. And friends, what God feels best for Tower View Baptist Church is that we would live lives unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our unity is a reflection of God. No Christian questions the truth that there's one God or one Spirit or one Lord or one God overall or one baptism. God has a universal plan, and the church is his pilot project, if you want to call it that way. The church here at Tower View, our local fellowship, is the church of God in the miniature. It's showing what he's all about. If you ever think about church that way, Friends, when we talk about things, as we look to hire a, a youth person, a music person, some of y'all, we may have, some of y'all may want to go back to the 1600s and be silent, not saying anything or talking church. I don't know. Some of y'all may want the most cutting edge music. Some of y'all may want the hymns of old times. Look, we are preferences across the board, and we're going to have different ideas about different things. But the one thing that unifies us is that Christ died for you, and Christ died for me. Amen. The church is not about people who all feel the same on a particular subject. It's about what we share in common. And if you're a Christian, you share the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And that's the foundation. It's on that truth that we build our church. If you're not a member here today, I I can report to you that after uh, a good time of two months, John Higgins and I have had a chance to sit down and really look at our membership book. And it's good. I, I, I say it's good. I, I don't want to be prideful in that. John and I say it looks good. Some of you all are interested in joining our church. In late July, we'll get more info out about this. We're going to have a members meeting. If you've never officially joined our church, you're looking to transfer a letter to our church to be baptized on a Sunday afternoon, a couple weeks, or a Saturday morning, we're going to have a membership class. I would encourage you to come. Or you say, well, it's been a while since I've gone through that class. Come. Join. Commit covenant with the other believers here because that is what God has called you to do. If you're a church member here today, have you forgotten? Have you prayed that your membership here would not just be a check mark that you get, you get that little card or whatever we give out and say, man, I'm a church member at Tower View. Be proud of that, but be prouder that God, by his grace, called you in his name to save you, that we would have the gospel. Are you willing to have your life used for the good of this church? Look, we have many needs. Men, it's Father's Day. There's a lot of needs around this church. There's ushering to be done. There's things to be done. Thank you, Properties Team, for serving and and pouring out that concrete in the back. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, go check on the other side. There's a big slab out there. That happened on Friday. Thank you, men, for helping with that. But the question is, are you praying how God would use you, church member, here as a way to unify the body of Christ? He's given them the motivation, he's given them the manner, and number three, he's given them the means. How do we do this, Paul? Paul, this is all good, I agree with you, but now you've got to land this plane. Where are we going with this, Paul? 
Well, let's go back to verses 3 and 4 and let's read these again. Verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, or vain conceit is what some translations say. But in humility, count others more significant or better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own, his or her own interest, but also to the interest of others. Charles Spurgeon, have you heard that reference enough? I think I've referenced him in every sermon. Read the guy. He's one of the most godly men that lived outside the Apostle Paul, I would argue. But he said this in relation to this passage. He said, every Christian has a choice between being humble and being humbled. Did you catch that difference? Every Christian has a choice between being humble and being humbled. Add a D to the end. Friends, what we are getting at is this. Unity is pursued by having not only a united purpose, but having humility. One of the greatest things that can tear down a church is when someone says, well, I know better. This is what I want to do, and I'm going to do it no matter if the church isn't for me. I'm here at Tower View. I'm going to stop my foot and do whatever I want to do. That is the greatest disunity you could ever bring upon a church. The word for conceit here carries with it the idea of worthless glory. That is pursuing your own glory instead of that of God's glory. Or pursuing your own glory instead of helping others, as verse 4 says. If you look at verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8, we'll be here next week, but why should we be humble? Why should we be of a sound mind and not consider ourselves more than we ought? Look at chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, that's Jesus Christ, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death or to death, even death on a cross. Why should we be humble in this church? Because God has humbled us by reminding us that we are sinners. We are in need of grace. And that even though we were sinners, that God himself, in the man Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, humbled himself to come down to us. You know, I love that show. Natalie and I watched this show on Friday night, uh, uh, Undercover Boss. You know, I love seeing, you've probably seen that show before, Undercover Boss. I love that show because it takes that CEO and the posh corner office who makes millions of dollars and puts them right on the front lines. And every time you see that show, every one of them said the same thing. I don't know if they're scripted, maybe they are, but they say the same thing. Boy, I never knew they worked this hard for me. Boy, if I'd only known what this person was going through, it would have made a big difference. And we look at Undercover Boss, CBS, uh, 7 o'clock on Friday nights and say, wow. Friends, how much more should we say, wow, that God himself took away and left glory to come down to us. That is what humility starts with. Humility is not belittling who you are, but it's about joyfully living for someone, that is God, and something bigger than yourself. You say, how do I know if I'm a humble person? You won't know you're a humble person if you walk around and say, hi, I'm Darren and I'm a humble person. You're a prideful person, you need to repent of that sin right there and right then. Humility comes as God shapes you in prayer, in study, and in service to what he's doing here before each other. And the culture of Philippi, let me just share this briefly. The culture of Philippi was this. You know, in India, they have the caste system where if you're of a certain social caste, you can't associate with another caste or like levels. Same way was true in Philippians, in Philippi. In that day, they had the Roman soldiers who were the cream of the crop, the old guys who founded the city and took it over. And they had all these other people that were there. And there was a problem going on in the church, we think, in 
from what we know, the, that some of those people who were of the higher social class didn't want to talk to the people of the lower social class. And Paul is directing them to stop thinking of each other and acting in a way that's based on social class or how much money they have in the bank, but instead to focus on Christian, gospel-centered unity. That's what he means. Count others more significant than yourselves. Are you praying? Am I praying? Are we praying here at church that we would consider others better than ourselves? It doesn't mean you're a doormat. It doesn't mean when you go to work tomorrow that you just let people walk all over you and you have no backbone. Friends, the, the, the Christian faith has a backbone. It's historically true. It's, it's proven. It's archaeologically true. We have evidential faith. But what it means is, is that are you willing to suffer not being able to do what you want to do in the church so that others get in front of you? Are you willing to let someone else teach that class so that others can serve? Are you willing to let others get the limelight and you just step back just like that? It's hard as a pastor to do that. I'll be very honest with you. In today's social media age where pastors have followings upon followings, it's very easy for me to look at this church over here and say, man, if I could just be over there and I'm happy here, please hear me clearly. Just saying what pastors go through. It's very easy to say, well, if I just had this or we just had that or our church would be great. Are you grateful for what God has given you here at Tower View? Friends, we have a ways to go. We have missions and plans, yes, but grateful that God has given us the fellowship here, amen? And that is true. He goes on in verse 4. How do we do this, Paul? He says, don't look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is very similar to what he just said in verse 3, but it's more of active sense of not just thinking highly of others, but acting towards them. It's easy to say, I'm not going to think that I'm prideful, but it's another way to act that you're not prideful. Paul wanted them to be concerned about the overall welfare of their brothers and sisters. Paul is not saying don't take care of your family, fathers especially. If you're a father here, if you're not married, you'll be a father someday. Can I challenge you? Paul said in 1 Timothy that the man who doesn't take care of his family is worse than an unbeliever. There's a context to that, but the general purpose is this. If you're a man of the house, you are called to take care of your family as best you can. Paul's not saying don't take care of your family here, but rather he's saying you must look out for the interests and needs of others. Have an eye for it. Keep it on the forefront of your mind. God, is there a way I can serve you? Go to work tomorrow and pray, Lord, is there someone I can serve today even though I've been around these people for years? God, is there someone I can call? Is there someone I can email? Or if you're really tech savvy, is there someone I can Facebook? Is there someone I can Twitter? Is there someone I can whatever? No one is to be left out. What does this mean for us? You know, many people today in church life are in two areas. Some people are very interested in theology, the study. Man, it's, it's really exhilarating. If you're a study person, you love to study, knowing all the facts is good. Some of y'all are in that boat, and I tend to be more in that boat than most. But a lot of people are all about the doing. Don't give me the facts. Just let me do it. Pastor, I don't want to hear the facts. I just want to serve. Or the opposite side, Pastor, I don't want to serve. Just give me, give me a good lesson. Give me something deep. Well, well, your, your sermon wasn't that deep. Well, how do we bridge those two? We bridge it this way. If you want to serve Jesus Christ, as Paul talks about in verses 3 and 4, you'll also want to serve his bride, the local church. Friends, that's what it's all about. If you're a church member here today, some of you serve very faithfully, and you, you, you're part of the 20% that does 100% of the work. Can I ask that our church, can, would you pray? Say, Lord, maybe there's an opportunity for me in the nursery. Lord, maybe there's an opportunity for me to hand out uh, papers before service, the, the bulletins. 
Maybe there's an opportunity for me to be an usher. Lord, maybe there's an opportunity for me to serve humbly in a way that doesn't get the limelight, but Lord, it serves you. Would you pray about that this week? Would you pray, God, help me. Call Judy in the office. I know Miss Judy, she'll answer that phone, and we have a whole list of needs. If you're looking for a place to serve, come talk to us. Ladies, you too, guys, young, old, middle-aged, teenager, whatever it is. Examine your heart. Consider God's plan. Are you open to what God would have you do, even if it means, can I be frank with you, even if it means wiping the dirty diapers in the nursery? Praise the Lord we have young children to wipe bottoms of. Amen? What a blessing. Lord, give me gospel-centered unity, and sometimes, friends, it starts with the very service that most people don't think about or don't want to do. But as Christians, we are also called to be very patient and bearing with one another in love. You say, Darren, there's someone in this church I just can't talk with or sit by. I don't know them. Go back and read Exodus. Boy, was God ever patient with the people in Exodus, wasn't he? Time after time, don't do this. Moses comes off the mountain and the earth shakes and, and what are they doing? They're down there dancing to a golden calf. What are you guys doing? Come on. God is slow to anger. Christian, are you like the unmerciful servant that God talked about? The servant who refused to forgive a small debt when he himself had been forgiven a long debt. Are you willing to show mercy to people in this church today? Because you know why? You know what our ultimate motivation is? Jesus is not going to say to you on that day, well done, good and famous servant. Well done, good and famous servant. No. That does not naturally proceed out of our hearts, but the Holy Spirit has been sent to help us. So whether you are in this theology group where you're, you're all about thinking and, and, and that's good and it starts with the mind, or you're in the service group and you say, I don't want those facts. Those two people got to merge together at some point. Thinkers, deep people in this church, those that you know your doctrine well, are you praying that God would take that doctrine in the head and apply it to the heart for the unity of Christ? People who serve, you know, showed up the first day here at Tower View, and I think there were like 20 people here working, and they didn't even know I was coming. And there's people in the weeds, there's people who are fixing bathrooms, like, wow, what is this church all about? This church is a busy serving church. If you are a servant in this church, and many of you are, are you praying that God would unite you with that other side, that God would use you that way? Truth is necessary in this church if you're going to be involved. It may not seem necessary but it's a commentary on you if you don't think you need that truth. But if you're all about the, the knowledge and not the service, it's also a commentary on you. The way you do or do not care, rejoice with, or care for someone else is what creates community at this church. Let's go back to that big idea one more time. Friends, Paul's praying for this church at Philippians very clearly that they have a true unity. A false unity is manufactured when we are not in the gospel. J.C. Ryle, one of those good dead guys. I love the dead guys. I've, I've joked before, they don't talk back, they just speak. Here's another one. He said this. He said, unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is a unity from the very unity. It's, it is the very unity of hell. Unity without the gospel is worthless. It is the very unity of hell. Friends, will you pray for this church as we move forward, as we do all these things that we're doing and will continue to do, that our focus is on what Jesus Christ did for us. That's why we pray for a sister church or churches every week. That's why we associate with our local association. That's why we can come together, even KU fans, 
Megan and Cameron, can come together with MMU fans because we are centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go before the Lord today and pray. Father, we are so grateful today that you have given us the gospel of your son. Lord, it sounds like it, we are beating a dead horse sometimes because we talked about it so much, but Lord, that horse keeps on going and it keeps trucking forward because we know, Lord, that the gospel is what we need to preach, share with ourselves every day. Father, I pray for the, those on the thinking side here. I, I don't know. Lord, I pray that those people would serve alongside those who are on the doing side, that we would have unity in Christ because it's a both and, the theology and forms or methodology. Lord, help us to do that. Lord, I pray for anyone in here who needs to just continue on loving another person, even if it's hard. Father, I pray that we would pray for one another in this church, that, Lord, at the very most simplistic prayer, that we would get to know one another in this church personally, what's going on in lives, how we can minister to one another. Lord, help us do that to your honor and to your glory. Lord, you are so good, and we thank you so much for your son. We thank you for the fathers here, and Lord, we pray very specifically for them that they would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We lift this up today, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.